0: Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation. FINRA member. Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
1: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App.
2: Let's get to the conversation that started this morning with Laurie Cavasina, Head of U.S. Equity Strategy over at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, good morning to you. Let's start with that move in crude. Is that a wrinkle in the soft landing dream, crude getting back to 90 again?
3: Well, thanks for having me, as always, John. I think there are so many wrinkles right now. I think you can add this uh, to a conflicting cross-current list. Um, on the one hand, I think the last thing consumers need at this point in time, especially as we're heading into this student lending issue, which is you know, engendering a lot of uncertainty on the street, is a spike in oil prices and gas prices. On the other hand, if we get the energy sector working, and I think that happens, Happens as oil prices move up. Um, that does you know potentially spark a shift out of growth and back into value in more cyclical parts of the market. Um, so I think wrinkle is definitely a good way to describe it.
2: Well United you- Airlines might have a problem. Look at these numbers. Jet fuel prices climbing over 20% since the middle of July, seeing third quarter all-in fuel price from two ninety-five to three dollars and five cents a gallon. Bramo, this is gonna hurt individual companies, particularly the airlines.
1: Well, and not just hurt, but also is a question of, are they going to try to pass it along to consumers, right? These are sort of the knock-on effects of higher oil prices that could percolate into inflation more than just higher crude prices. Lori, do you see any challenge to the soft landing thesis and the price action, whether on the heels of higher crude prices or just because there is such acceptance of this beautiful Goldilocks scenario?
3: Well, one of the things we've been talking to clients about you know, the last few weeks and got into a deep discussion about this with someone yesterday is the buffers for consumers, I think, are far greater than people have anticipated. So I'm still in the soft landing kind of Goldilocks camp. One of the things we've talked about a lot with people is if you look at the effective rate on mortgage debt outstanding, at the end of the second quarter, it was still about 3.6%. So everyone talks about the savings rate, right, which got you know pulled down. Now it's actually creeping back up again. But I've been telling people that's not the only buffer out there. Um, We're still really benefiting as consumers from this era of low interest rates. And yes, things are starting to shift in a different direction. But I think that buffer has been underappreciated, to be honest.
2: An update from Alaska Rare as well, Laurie, not just United Airlines. This headline crossing in the last minute or so. Fuel prices have increased considerably in the past few weeks. They now see third quarter fuel costs per gallon of about $3.15 to $3.25. So clearly a problem for the airlines. Laurie, but maybe in your mind, not a problem for the consumer. Now, some people pointing to that positive real wage growth we might start to get going into year end and perhaps into 2024 as well. Consumer discretionary has been a big theme for a lot of people, Laurie, in certain parts of that sector. I'm thinking of the airlines. I'm thinking of the cruise lines as well. It's that kind of spending, Laurie, in your mind, set to last into year end.
3: So I I would say let's separate the airlines somewhat from the consumers generally. If you look at airline earnings revision trends, they've actually been pretty peaky, um, suggesting that maybe sentiment from an earnings perspective had gotten a little bit stretched on that side. So I would maybe put those into a separate category. I did notice in our weekly we are still tracking the TSA data, a couple of COVID, a high frequency indicator holdovers, and we've started to see some weakness on that. So I think that is something to keep an eye on here. But I do think generally this idea that consumers are tired of all these goods, they have too much stuff in their houses and basements, and they want to get out and live their lives again. um, I do think that there are still some tailwinds there. Now, is that going to slow down? We are definitely seeing if you look through a variety of earnings calls, companies saying consumers are becoming more cost conscious. They are pushing back. Um, They are adapting to this intense price environment around them. So I would say expect some moderation from my seat. I wouldn't see that as reason to panic, though. I'd see that as as evidence of rationality, to be honest.
1: But, Lori, just to build on that, there is a question, especially as we see Alaska Air and as we see United Air talk about higher fuel prices, how much they can pass that along to the consumer. You're saying there is price sensitivity increasingly uh, showing itself. Is this just going to end up showing itself in margin compression?
3: I think that's a great point, Lisa. That's another hot topic we've been having with clients in our conversations lately is what's going to happen to margins next year. I've got a tiny bit of margin contraction baked into my earnings forecast, and that stands in contrast. Uh, To the street numbers, which are anticipating a bit of expansion. One of the things we've told people is that as inflation comes down, companies are going to lose the the sort of justification for passing through these price increases, and that ends up impacting revenues. The flow through to margins, in my back testing at least, is not completely clear. I think there you know there are soft offsets, like management ability to kind of manage through cut costs in various places. The margin data is very very messy to forecast, but I will tell you that I, I really see in my model evidence. That as pricing comes down, as inflation comes down, it is a bigger hit to revenue growth than most people understand. And I think that's one of the new narratives people we are going to have to be discussing as we start to formulate 2024 outlooks.
2: Laurie, I've got to squeeze this in the headline of your piece overnight. There are tactical problems with the growth trade. What are those tactical problems?
3: Crowding, overvaluation, earnings dominance is eroding. It's that simple. It has been outperforming for very good reasons. We're steering down the barrel of what's probably a sluggish economy for quite some time. But that is priced in. It's just a plain, old-fashioned, overvalued, crowded trade right now.
2: Laurie Cavasina of RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, thanks for the update from the RBC desk.
1: Joining us now is someone who always has incredible insights. We loved catching up with her over in Jackson Hole. Neela Richardson, chief economist at ADP with a real insight into just how much ammunition firepower a lot of the consumers have. And Neela, throughout the morning, John and I were talking about this real income increase that we're seeing across the board. And I'm wondering from your perspective, how much is that going to fuel the next wave of consumer spending in a way that maybe isn't being fully appreciated?
4: Hi, Lisa. Good morning. Good to see you. Yeah. Real wages going up is a great thing. It's a great thing for workers. But I think it's very important to provide context to that number because uh, the thing about inflation, and I know this sounds very obvious, is that prices generally go up. But when it comes to core inflation, they don't come back down. And so (laughs) we're still looking at higher prices from the consumer perspective. And where you've seen the wage growth is for predominantly low pay jobs. Um, And so that by our estimate is about $5,000 over the course of a year and a half of double digit wage growth for this particular sector. $5,000 after tax doesn't buy a lot of eggs, uh, oil, Uh, higher rent prices, and medical care. So you have to put this in the context of the consumer household budget as well.
1: It's really important to look at it that way, especially in light of what we've been talking about also this morning a lot, which is oil prices and gasoline prices, diesel, all of it heading higher and significantly so. How much is that going to crimp budgets in a more material way at a time where there already is heightened awareness of price sensitivity simply because of what we've seen and the levels that we've gotten to?
4: Oil prices going up, even for a short time, just complicates this narrative for the Fed, right? It's the one part of the economy we we thought we've, we've had under control, that higher oil prices wasn't going to spill over into transportation costs or goods production. But yeah, the specter has risen again. And so now we know even if they the oil prices go down in the short term. They're always there, not quite asleep. And they could pick pe- up in terms of the consumer budget. We're back to school. We're back to work. We're back to commuting. And, and so those oil prices are, are not going to be something that consumers can skirt around, even if there's more work, remote work than there used to be.
1: And we were talking about this in light of some of the warnings from the likes of United Airlines and Alaska Airlines and Southwest saying that their energy prices have increased dramatically, which is not shocking considering what diesel has done how much can they pass this along to consumers that already are starting to push back
4: yeah that that's tricky uh, air flights have gone up consumers may have overdrawn their burst of revenge travel and especially going into the fall there's less of a holiday travel season and so that's also a particular concern also it's very hot at least I don't know if you noticed that I did notice that but in terms of energy <laughs> costs. Even late into September in much of the country, air conditioning is really driving up energy costs separate from the airlines, but part of the overall consumer budget picture uh, that allows for that wiggle room for travel. You're paying higher energy costs at home, harder to make room for that, that last minute fall season travel as well. Although I will say
1: that recently, just anecdotally, talking about the Beige Book and anecdotes, I will say that going into stores, I've noticed that people are actually air conditioning less. And I wonder how much it's to save costs, because sometimes you go in and it's still really hot. Anyway, I digress. I'm wondering, um, from your vantage point going forward, a lot of people are looking at Friday's jobs report and saying it was Goldilocks. It basically gave the Fed a free pass to remain on hold. And then bond yields rose. They rose on Friday and they rose again yesterday. People saying it was technical. People saying it's because Maybe the Fed would pause and then there'd be a reacceleration of inflation. How would you describe the labor data that we've been getting, both from ADP as well as from the government, in terms of is it really Goldilocks? Yeah.
4: You know, we're in a labor market that is, in some sense, Goldilocks. We're seeing wage pressures start to decline and moderate. We're still seeing solid job gains. But within that overall macro picture, it's a highly fragmented market. It's a market that has seen a lot of churn uh, and continues to see elevated churn. Uh, and within all of that, there's a lot of inefficiencies. And so really, I think that the Fed's job now is much more complicated. When inflation was super high, it was easy to know what monetary policy was supposed to do. Now they're entering this period of fine tuning, right? They're tweaking uh, what the terminal rate should be. Maybe it's 25 more basis points. Maybe it's 50. Maybe it's a pause in September. There's all the spectrum of choice, depending on what Data you're looking at. If you look at the labor market, there is an argument to go stronger and there is a, uh, an argument to pause. And it's just a matter of where you're putting the weight. Uh, are you putting it on the unemployment rate? Or are you putting it on wage growth? And that is going to be something that the Fed is going to have to feel out in all of this data.
1: What happened to all the layoffs, the white collar layoffs that people were talking about a year ago?
4: They never happened. (laughs) We see initial jobless claims are still quite low. Uh, And this is still a very solid labor market, even though the unemployment rate went up to 3.8 percent in this last report. It was because more people came into the labor market, not necessarily because companies were laying off. And when we look at our data, we see still solid growth across sectors, even sectors that have struggled this year like manufacturing. For sure, services are still seeing strength. And so, yeah, if you're looking for bad news on the economy, I encourage you to look elsewhere because the labor market is not the source of it right now.
1: Which a lot of people are saying is the reason why there is going to be ongoing strength. Mila Richardson, Chief Economist at
0: ADP. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
5: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: Kevin Book joins us now, Managing Director of Research at Clearview Energy Partners. Kevin, what is crude doing in the 80s with oil production in America at 12.8 million barrels a day?
6: Well, it's it's prospering. It's going ahead and reaching for the skies because uh, some of the biggest producers in the world, other than the U.S., are cutting supplies to the world. Uh, and when you look at the Saudi Arabian uh, and Russian decisions in recent days, I think traders are starting to finally take them seriously. You know, uh, Prince Abdul Aziz, the energy minister of Saudi Arabia, referred to the, the million barrel voluntary cut as a lollipop. Uh, it's starting to seem like an all day sucker, a uh, really long lasting effect. And that's getting priced in now as well.
2: Kevin, they're talking up monthly reviews. Are you saying in that monthly review, nothing's going to change?
6: Well, nothing has changed so far. That is a caveat that leaves room for opportunity. I think the, the kingdom in particular is wary of crushing economic recovery wherever it might occur. And stalling the economy generally, uh, globally. But uh, right now, it looks like there's still room to run. So, no, we're, we're, we, from the very start, if you looked at it, the $75 barrel worked backwards from an elasticity effect, it looked like it should have been about a $9, $9.5 per barrel uh, impact from the million dollar cutback. The market didn't price it in right away, probably because it thought it was evanescent. But now that it looks enduring, yeah, sure, we're looking at a real premium.
1: At this point, though, how much is this also driven by the fact that growth isn't as bad as people previously expected in places like China and even Europe?
6: Second half of the year is always a bigger demand part of the, the year than the first half. My colleague uh, Jacques Rousseau, who you have on from time to time as well, uh, he, uh, he points out that we're looking at about a 4Q, 2.1 million barrel demand ahead of supply. Uh, de- so that, that that deficit is going to be pretty enduring. There's a lot of that demand concentrated, yes, in China, a lot of it in jet fuel. Uh, that increases the risks if there's a if there's some sort of hiccup over there. Uh, but it doesn't change the the overall dynamic when we're looking at a, a sort of a, a seasonal effect.
1: There's also a question around what the bogey is for Saudi Arabia and maybe even for Russia. Is there a sense that they're trying to get oil prices to a certain specific level before uh, they'll start to try to balance out some of their supply versus the demand?
6: Well, I think that there are two separate things that have to be taken separately. Uh the kingdom is aligned with the Kremlin uh very explicitly as a matter of business, not politics. Uh and uh if you look at the the Kremlin, uh they've figured out that revenue is equal to price times volume. And if they're going to cut volume, a higher price works for them. Uh the uh the differences, though, are one country funding a war and another engaged in a very sophisticated and elaborate uh negotiation towards expanding the Abraham Accords. Uh, I don't think that the, the the kingdom is looking to blow up that opportunity, uh, difficult though it may be and with many steps yet to come.
2: How important, Kevin, is it to refill the SPR? And how likely is it we're going to do that anytime soon?
6: Well, the Energy Department made it pretty clear, John, that there's not much interest in doing it at this price level. Uh, they pulled back from their, their requisition for 6 million barrels of additional volume. Uh, but how important is it? Look, that's a matter of opinion and perception. Uh, There are some who would say that the SPR was never needed, and especially not now in a world of shale. I've testified at least six times on the Hill that uh, it's an insurance policy, and the insurance is cheap when you look at what it can do to prices to draw it when you need it. Uh, So I would be in the camp that it is worth refilling and should be done uh, as, as soon as it can be affordably done.
2: So effectively, to build on what you've testified, we don't have that insurance policy right now, Kevin. So how vulnerable are we?
6: Well, we have 350 million barrels of oil in the SPR still, which is not trivial. Uh, on the other hand, what we don't have is the full carrying capacity of the reserve. Uh, and we don't have the, the the clarity that that conveyed when it was bigger. Uh, I think that was not only a message to the world about insurance against economic risk, but also a message to producers that if they didn't take up the slack and bring the market back into alignment, the U.S. would undercut them and take away their premium.
1: How awkward does this make the meeting between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman of uh, Saudi Arabia expected in the next few days or so at the G20 meetings?
6: I I don't think it's going to get in the way of a fist bump. Uh, Look, the the currency, the economic currency of oil trade uh, remains the dollar, much to the chagrin of some who would think otherwise. The political currency of oil prices remains blame. Uh, the challenge for the the White House is not just geopolitical, but also domestically political. The usual steps in in the process of prices rising is for a White House to blame overseas producers, domestic producers. In this particular case, blaming overseas producers very much complicates the negotiation. And you saw Jake Sullivan yesterday very specifically avoid blaming the the kingdom uh, as, as he and former National Economic Council Director Brian Deese did in October. Uh, And now at home, you also have producers, some of them aligned, at least uh, notionally, with the White House climate agenda, probably not going to want to blame them, at least ahead of the conference of parties in Dubai. Uh, So uh, maybe a little lighter on the blame uh, and more room to talk given
1: that there isn't going to necessarily be a lot of action that necessarily comes from these discussions based on the unwillingness to really place blame. What is the offset? What is the off ramp for oil prices going even higher? Why aren't we going to stay at these levels and go even higher from here for the near future?
6: I'm not sure you would want to bet against uh, going higher, but they're obviously the, the economic fundamentals decay when prices rise. American drivers are pretty resilient. We can see that right now. On a trailing 12-month basis through July, though, we estimate that you're talking about you know, some 600-plus uh, gallons uh, bought over the, the, the year through July by the average driver, more, by the way, in red states than in blue states. So there's economics and politics to that. The other side of it, though, is where you get more supply. Look, it would be difficult to say this, I think, from the, the White House perspective, but a certain amount of rail politique is already at work on sanctions. Uh, the unspoken mini-deal with Iran brings sour barrels to market. Uh, sanctions leniency with Venezuela that could be crafted ahead of the the election next year to induce democratic reforms. That too looks like another source of barrels and maybe a certain amount of pragmatism in enforcing the price cap on Russian barrels to third countries. Uh, So there there are heavily sanctioned countries where the White House can take a light touch. Uh, It looks like they may already be doing so or poised to do so.
2: Kevin, do you like cruises? That's all we want to know.
6: I, uh, I like cruising in a car slowly uh, down the street on a hot summer day. That's I wonderful. Swooped on a boat with nothing but food and booze. Not so much.
2: There we go. we am on the same page, <laughs> Kevin. Thank you, Kevin Burke of this? Clearview Energy Partners. <laughs> Adam Ruskin joins us now, chief international strategist over at Deutsche Bank. Alan, talk is cheap. Japan is talking a lot. Will verbal intervention work?
7: Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. Talk is cheap. Um, They're really fighting a strong dollar uh, above all else. So they don't really have control over the big dollar story. Uh, They do have some control over the yen. Uh, If they really want to uh, strengthen the yen, then they do have the tools now. They've effectively freed up. Uh, the 10-year yield to move above what is now their latest cap at 65 basis points. So they can let the 10-year yield drift up. Uh, The equilibrium rate is probably somewhere between 1% and 1.25%. If we did see a 50 basis point increase in the 10-year yield, that would do it, I think. Uh, That would uh, do a lot more. Uh, Than intervention is going to do as far as uh, capping dollar yen.
1: Right now, we are seeing uh, that 10-year treasury, the 10-year Japanese bond, at 65 basis points, which is sort of shocking given where, where it's coming from, uh, just in terms of how much it's crept up. Alan, what is the line in the sand for the Bank of Japan? It seems to be moving in terms of the yen, and at what point it is too weak.
7: Yeah, I think it's fortunate that it's moving because lines in the sand are open to uh, market attack. Uh, We've consistently seen verbal intervention uh, in this sort of 145 to 150 range. Uh, You would think that uh, if the yen is being singled out for weakness and we move above uh, 150, then on those two conditions, really, uh, some intervention could well be seen. Uh, But I think it's going to need... to see something a little bit different from what we're seeing right now, which is the yen being singled out uh, for weakness. Uh, In general, you know, we're seeing a lot of other currencies under the kosh. uh, You know, China, same sort of story in some sense. Um, So, uh, you know, I don't think the Japanese can say there's a Japan story in particular.
1: Although in Japan, it's not a positive thing. They don't want to see a currency that's this weak. Over in China, there's a question of maybe they want a weaker currency. Maybe that will actually help juice grow. by uh, increasing exports. At what point is a weaker UN a positive for China versus something they want to intervene with?
7: Well, I think it is a positive. Um, the authorities might you know, look at it somewhat differently. You know, there are all sorts of things like national pride that get roped into uh, views on the exchange rate. But I think if you looked at uh, the pure economics, uh, you'd say, look, China's facing deflation in its asset markets. It's facing disinflation in its goods market. Uh, the exchange rate is a very natural safety valve uh, to allow for policy easing that you can't in- 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 enact anywhere else. Um, you've got interest rates extremely low at the moment. You've got uh, liquidity on the soft side. So the exchange rate's a natural vehicle, I think, uh, to actually ease up.
2: Alan, if there are benefits from that, why are they setting such an aggressive reference rate? What do you think that's about? Concerns about the pace of the move?
7: Yeah, I think uh, at the moment, uh, it does seem like the authorities care an awful lot about uh, their levels and, uh, you know, the level vis-a-vis the dollar in particular. Um, you know, I think there are, Elements there, as I said, where uh, you know the weakness that you're seeing, uh, I think they don't really want the exchange rate to be another source of instability. And it is obviously something which uh, uh, the markets can really latch onto. It's very visible in a way in which the sort of, property sector problems are much less visible. So I think they, in some ways, trying to control the things that they think they can control for the time being, probably paying for time to some extent, because you know, if the Feds does eventually cut rates in 2024, You do have the basis then for a somewhat weaker dollar, and it takes some of the pressure off the Chinese authorities.
1: Do you think that the dollar has appreciated so much, though, Alan, that it is presenting some sort of stability risk uh, more generally? At what point, how much further does it have to go to actually shake things up just because of some of these pressures over in Asia in particular?
7: no i don't think it's a stability risk uh, honestly i think uh, disinflation and deflation are the stability risk i think uh, the chinese authorities have the capacity to manage uh, some weakness to the extent that the external accounts are still pretty strong exports are, are pretty much doing uh, what the rest of asia is doing but uh, they could be stronger but the current account is in a you know, solid surplus and i think that's going to cushion any particular weakness i don't think they need to be too afraid that all- all of a sudden, the yuan is uh, going to drop a bit precipitously.
2: Alan, thank you, sir. On Foreign Exchange, and I'm Ruskin, at Deutsche Bank.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions. So more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
5: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: David Liebwitz is going to rescue you. Global (laughs) Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. David, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Let's talk about that wrinkle in the soft landing dream. It's crude back towards $90, just south of that now, through that level yesterday.
8: How much of a problem might that be for this rally that's really stalled out recently? So, I I think that the problem it presents is that it creates a tension between the growth story and the inflation story that creates this tension for the Federal Reserve. And so, on the one hand, we're going to see headline inflation, which is what central banks obviously target despite focusing quite a bit on on core. You're going to see the headline inflation number begin to move higher. At the same time, you have these higher energy prices, you have the resumption of student loan payments, you have a savings rate that has dropped relatively precipitously. And we we wonder if the consumer is beginning to bend, not necessarily break, but show some signs of weakness. And this, again, creates a tension for the Fed. They want to make sure that they get rid of the inflation that's been generated over the past couple of years, but they're trying to do so without causing a recession. So their job has become infinitely more difficult given this move.
1: Bear with me here for a second. How important is it what happens with those extra oil costs for the airline industries? In other words, if you start to see them pass it along to consumers, does that shift the conversation at the Federal Reserve in a way that it wouldn't if it started to eat into margins?
8: So I think the the airlines are an interesting story because they've had pricing power all along, right? As people have begun to reengage with services and and kind of put goods off to the sides, the airlines have said, we've been able to raise prices and people are willing to pay. I don't know why you would change that in this type of environment. So I think that they're going to continue to raise prices in an effort to defend their margins. But that's going to create an inflation problem. And again, at some point here, the consumer is going to need to make that decision. Do they go on the extra trip or do they hunker down and begin to prepare for a more challenging growth environment?
1: Do you sense a shift? And we've been talking about that this morning from this consensus around a Goldilocks and a soft landing to suddenly something more in the Neil Dutta and the Katie Kaminsky camp of, hold on a second. What if the Fed does pause and then they have to hike rates again next year. And all of those rate cuts that are getting priced in are absolutely off the table. Are you moving to that side at all?
8: So I, I think what's interesting, if we take a step back, is that at the start of the year, everything was going really well. You know, Europe avoided a recession. China reopened and had a really good first quarter. The U.S. data was better than expected. And everybody kind of got this warm, fuzzy feeling that, that it was all going to be OK. What's happened more recently? China stalling out, Europe so showing some serious cracks, particularly in manufacturing and an inflation story that isn't really resolving itself the way that people would expect. I'm not sure that we have more clarity on you know where we're going to be 12 months from now, but I think you're seeing investors begin to entertain the idea that maybe a soft landing isn't a guarantee. And I think that's what's causing market volatility to pick up here. Well, I've uh, struggled with this years. year, David, and we spoke, spoke to Steve Chevron about this yesterday. He said that when
2: growth is scarce, you buy growth in the equity market. And I said, well, it's odd because we've had this growth rally year to
8: date in the face of a series <sighs> of upside surprises in the US economy. What is that about? So I think that, you know, somebody actually said that exact same thing to me yesterday and so we I got to practice this conversation, but I think it's because they listen to us, David. It, that's it, why. Exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, the the issue here with buying growth in anticipation of slower growth is that we had the AI boom over the course of the past few months. And so valuation is way off size. If if you know these were 10 multiple points cheaper on some of the big names, we'd be more interested, but given where they're trading today, It's a very difficult case to buy risk assets at a valuation that feels extended when you see some potential clouds on the horizon. And so we're leaning more into value, more defensive names, the dividend payers. And a big part of that is the price that we're being asked to pay to hold those hold those assets.
1: Well, are we looking also at uh, energy companies that are really going to be coming to the fore and actually becoming more
8: popular? So, energy, you know, I, I feel like there have been a number of false starts over the years where people get really excited about energy and then it kind of falls flat on its face. I do think that, you know, the underlying businesses from an operating perspective are in much better shape than they were, say, five years ago. And so, if you get that tailwind of higher oil prices, you get that margin expansion, and you continue to have this focus on returning cash to shareholders, energy could be one bright spot perhaps in the short to medium term. And I think, That's what makes this market so difficult to to figure out, right? We're talking about a slower growth environment potentially in 2024, but we're talking about energy companies and airlines that have pricing power. And so which side of the trade do you want to be on? Are we going to get the soft landing, and do you want to lean into that cyclicality, or do you see clouds on the horizon and maybe we don't want to play it a little bit more defensively?
1: I want to ask you kind of a sensitive question. It's not about cruise lines, (laughs) but I know that other people at your firm have been talking about the entire yield curve at 3%. And everything going back lower. Are there any shifts or arguments right now within the team about this idea that you could have higher for longer and that maybe these higher longer term yields are here to stay?
8: So what I would say is that the dispersion across the research community of Wall Street is nearly identical to the dispersion of views that we have internally. You know, there are lots of people in in very different places. I think what the Fed would like to see over time, is a positive real yield curve that slopes upward. So I'm in the higher for longer camp. And I think when they do cut, maybe they go back down to two and a half. Is two and a half really the the neutral rate in the type of environment that we find ourselves in? I do think that we need to be prepared for an environment where rates stay higher for longer. But I don't think that's a bad thing, right? Interest rates, that allows markets to do what they're supposed to do, which is differentiate between winners and losers. And that hasn't been the case for the past 15 years. So this could be a better environment for value. Better environment for active management, better environment for fixed income, you know, a world that maybe feels and looks a little bit more like the environment we were in prior to 2008. So the bias is steeper curves? I think so. Okay, because we've just had
2: a record potentially. This came from Cameron Christ yesterday. 217 consecutive weekdays in 06, 07, this yield curve was in inverted territory. Yesterday was the 216th. So today is 217. Can you believe it's been that long?
1: it is becoming kind of nuts right especially considering the fact that people used to say this is a sure thing for recession where is that now what do i read into that
8: so i think this is this is the issue in the current environment we know all of the economic models broke during covid you know forecasting is nowhere near as straightforward in this environment as it was prior to the pandemic and so what you see amongst the investment community is just this very wishy-washy behavior where it's one side of the boat, then it's the other side of the boat. It's, you know, 40 percent of professional forecasters saying we're going to have a recession that then doesn't materialize. And now everybody thinks we're going to have a soft landing. I think what we need to recognize is <clears> Change five un- times this year, right, the, the, the <laughs> unprecedented nature of everything that's gone on, particularly the fiscal response. We don't have a playbook for that because we haven't seen a fiscal response like the one we saw to covid in decades, David, thank you. This was great. David Lievitz of JP Morgan Asset Management.
1: Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.